it's time for you all to wake up and shift your paradigm. This world is the kingdom of darkness and we are living in its last days. It won't be long before the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat and the earth and everything therein shall be burnt up. The Luciferian elite have been setting up the new world order and now they've established the globalist beast system for the rise of that wicked one and revealing of the man of sin who comes after the workings of Satan. Don't take my word for it. Read the Bible and you'll know that perilous times shall come in the last days and we are in the last days. Some of the information in this video is going to be quite shocking to many people, especially those of you who live in the United States. So let's begin. Manly Palmer Hall was a Canadian-born author, lecturer, astrologer and mystic. He's best known for his 1928 work, The Secret of All Ages. Over his 70-year career, he gave thousands of lectures, including two at Carnegie Hall and published over 150 books. In 1934, he founded the Philosophical Research Society in Los Angeles, which he dedicated to the truth-seekers of all time, with a research library, lecture hall and publishing house. Many of his lectures can be found online and his books are still in print. It's important to note that Manly P. Hall was in fact an occultist, a Freemason and a Luciferian. We can see from his writings that he was deeply into the occult and that he promoted Luciferian doctrine and Freemasonry without any shadow of doubt. He basically promoted the deification of man, which is found in all Luciferian doctrine, hence this quotation. He spoke a lot about secrets, secret societies, secret symbols, and the secret language of symbolism, and of course Freemasonry, because he was heavily into Freemasonry. Manly P. Hall also taught that Jesus certainly was not the way, the truth, and the life. According to him, Jesus was just one of many spiritual teachers that led humans into spiritual enlightenment. This, of course, agrees with the teachings of Theosophy and Helena Blavatsky. Manly P. Hall wrote three books about America, The Secret History of America, America's Assignment with Destiny, and The Secret Destiny of America. This description says, Hall reveals how shadowy mystical orders lay behind the seemingly fortuitous birth of the United States, bringing together such forgotten fragments of history as Akhenaten's monotheism, Christopher Columbus's true identity, the London prophecy delivered the year of Washington's birth, and the mysterious stranger who swayed the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Manly P. Hall gives a surprisingly plausible account of the American nation as an occult experiment in enlightened self-government and religious liberty. In this description of the book, it says, Is America an assignment of destiny? What is the symbolism of the great seal of the U.S.? Who was the mysterious stranger who swayed the signers of the Declaration of Independence? 
According to Lord Bacon, the new Atlantis seems to have been set apart for the great experiment of enlightened self-government long before the Founding Fathers envisioned the rise of the American Republic. Investigating the often neglected fragments of history, evidence is presented indicating that the seeds of democracy were planted 1,000 years before the beginning of the Christian era. In the book itself we read this. World democracy was the secret dream of the great classical philosophers. Thousands of years before Columbus, they were aware of the existence of our Western Hemisphere and selected it to be the site of the philosophic empire, i.e. the USA. The brilliant plan of the ancients has survived to our time and it will continue to function until the great work is accomplished. The American nation desperately needs a vision of its own purpose. Further down the page, he speaks of the challenge of the leadership of the world. He says, the larger problem and the great challenge is in how to set up a new order of world ethics firmly established on a foundation of democratic idealism. He speaks of international ethics and how that the world is now being conceived as one interdependent structure. Many books have been written about the occult origins of the United States and it is rooted in an ancient belief system, i.e. Luciferianism, rooted in Egyptology and worked out by Freemasonry. For example, we see George Bush Jr. surrounded by Freemasons in the White House. We also see the Founding Fathers of America wearing Masonic aprons, which of course is an inescapable fact. They were Freemasons. The Freemasons were also responsible for fermenting the French Revolution. We also see the evidence of Freemasonry on the American $1 bill. And here we read, it is only when we properly understand our past that we can understand where our leaders are taking us today. Only when we truly comprehend the occult heritage which our founding fathers set in place can we understand why America is constantly at war, why our nation forces a perverse brand of democracy upon the world, and why America has always been leading all nations steadily towards the Novus Ordo Seclorum, or the New Order of the Ages, i.e. the New World Order, the Illuminati symbol of which is on the back of the American $1 bill. In 1733, Rosicrucian Freemasonry formally entered America when the St. John's Lodge was established in Boston. It became the Masonic capital of Britain's colonies. By 1737, there were lodges in Massachusetts, New York, Pennsylvania and South Carolina, all committed to implementing the plan for a utopian New Atlantis. In February 1731, Benjamin Franklin became a Rosicrucian Mason and in 1734, Provincial Grand Master of Pennsylvania. Franklin returned to England from 1764 to 1775 and discovered Baconian English Freemasonry's secret doctrine to create a new world order or philosophical Atlantis in America. In 1775, Tom Paine, whom Franklin had sent to America to work on the Pennsylvania magazine, argued that America should demand independence from England. Franklin returned to Philadelphia and printed Paine's common sense propaganda. Hager notes that the federalism that finally united the 13 colonies into states 
was identical to the federalism of the Grand Lodge system of Masonic government which had been created in Anderson's Constitution of 1723. In the early 17th century, Sir Francis Bacon wrote his classic work The New Atlantis, citing America as the ideal location for the fulfillment of the long-held dreams of the Rosicrucians and other forerunners of Freemasonry. Bacon's book was the blueprint for colonizing the United States, advocating that America would become a paradise in which men would follow reason, become gods, and work for a universal world republic that would then replicate the utopian conditions of America throughout the known world. Secret knowledge would be passed on through the generations by Freemasons and other secret societies. As chief of the Rosicrucians and the first Grand Master of modern Freemasonry, Bacon sent his followers to the New World. The Rosicrucians and Freemasons arrived in America in their great numbers during the mass migrations of the first half of the 17th century. A 1910 Newfoundland stamp with this image upon it reads, Lord Bacon, the guiding spirit in the colonization scheme. Because of his influence, Francis Bacon is considered by some to be the real and true founder of America. For centuries, controversy has surrounded this figure who is said to be the illegitimate son of Queen Elizabeth I and secret author of the Shakespeare's plays, the man whom Thomas Jefferson considered one of the three most influential men in history. Foundation. George Washington was a Mason, a Mason in good standing. A number of the signers of the Declaration, your Articles of Confederation, a number of them were well-known Masons. A number of the generals in George Washington's army were also well-known Masons. America's founding is steeped in Masonic lore and Masonic history. But it's not just America's founding. That flavoring has flowed through America generation after generation after generation to the point where this country, the United States, is, has a, a Masonic saturation in its history, in the fabric of its, of its culture. When the Freemasons designed this majestic pagan city of D.C., they intended it to be their revived ritualistic chessboard with all pieces in place for their scheduled conjurings with the ultimate goal of awakening the spirit of Osiris, Apollyon, to one day inhabit their final world king. They have carried out this famed ritual with the inauguration of every U.S. president, firmly believing that the prophecies of America will in fact come to pass in the fullness of time. So the founding of America was clearly the beginning of the ancient prophecies being fulfilled the great blessed continent of the Western Hemisphere to become the philosophical democracy that would lead the world as a beacon of light into the new order of the ages. In order for this philosophical empire to bloom, there had to be two main prerequisites met, a safe haven that legislated and protected the freedom of all religious practices and a zenith of the secret teachings of the old world. And that's where secret societies enter the stage. Secret societies have existed among all people, savage and civilized, since the beginning of recorded history. It is beyond question that the secret societies of all ages have exercised a considerable degree of political influence.
Among some of the most influential of the Founding Fathers, we find secret societies which have remained in the shadows over the years, wielding their power and authority in American politics, culture, and religion. It's always been the goal of the secret orders to keep and maintain the ancient occult teachings and rituals while influencing the politics, religion, and culture of their day. Historically, the secret societies have seemed to always control the zeitgeist or the spirit of the time. Secret societies are groups of individuals who share commonalities, goals and visions of a united humanistic future of esoteric enlightenment. In other words, these groups are formed with a specific agenda of ecumenical unification of all faiths and creeds with the common goal of global order. This once again projects the American doctrine, E Pluribus Unum, or out of many comes one, the land where all paths lead to God. We're told that we are one nation under God, but as we see, this is a nation of many faiths, and the God declared by the founders was clearly not the God of the Bible. The God mentioned by the founders and even referenced on our currency is none other than the universal great architect entity, which high-level Freemasons reveal is actually Lucifer, the light bearer, the serpent God. This God accepts all faiths besides true biblical Christianity and goes by many names across the cultures. This is another brick in the wall of understanding secret societies and how they are able to coexist as a large body, even having factions within. The most notable secret societies that have influenced the occult New World system include the Freemasons, traditional Rosicrucians, Hellfire Club, Skull and Bones, Ancient Mystical Order Rosicrucis, Ordo Templi Orientis, the Golden Dawn, and the Jesuits. Seeing that America is the philosophical empire foretold by occultists of the ancient world, coupled with the fact that global decisions for order always have to be cleared via American politics and force, it is no surprise that politicians and corporate leaders from various secret societies, both foreign and domestic, all meet together for a blood sacrifice in a grove of biblical proportions every summer in California. Time would not allow for individual breakdown of every secret society in attendance. However, the common goals of these powerful groups are boldly plotted at this annual sacrificial gathering in the Redwood Forest. We're dealing with the United Nations of secret societies, if you will. Bohemian Grove is where the walls come down between the societies and the principalities emerge from the other side as some of the most powerful world leaders devise the biggest moves and changes that will take place on the world scene. Most people have heard about the Bohemian Grove, which is a yearly event that takes place in the redwoods of Northern California. What they don't know is that the Bohemian Grove is an adjunct to the Bohemian Club, which is in downtown San Francisco. Every year, they take this statue out of the Bohemian Club, a statue of St. John of Nepomuk from Czechoslovakia. Bohemia is in Czechoslovakia. They take this statue of St. John of Nepomuk, and every year they transport him from San Francisco to the Bohemian Grove up in Northern California. St. John of Nepomuk is considered the patron saint of Bohemian Grove. And this particular statue of him that makes a pilgrimage every year depicts Nepomuk making the occult sign of silence, covering his mouth. Historically, Nepomuk suffered death for keeping the queen's confessional secrets. This level of commitment is a standard in secret societies. Death before disclosure of secrets. Being a member or a guest even at the Grove entails taking an oath of silence, and this is clearly portrayed in the statue of their patron saint. 
The Bohemian Grove was a creation of members of the Bohemian Club that uh, had hundreds of acres in the redwood forest of northern uh, California. And they would invite the greats and the near greats uh, from across the world, all men, to these camps that were established there in the summer for several weeks. And they would meet together uh, secretly and they would brief one another about their government activities, the types of policies that were being uh, worked from one government to another. We had former presidents that went there. It's interesting, I know Colin Powell's emails after having gone to the Bohemian Grove uh, were released by WikiLeaks and he talked about this thing uh, that they did um, on abandoning care. What it was, they had this giant owl that would be set up in the woods and everybody would come and they would cast all their cares on this owl as a ritual of sorts. Now, you can dismiss that as silliness. Uh, these are grown men, most of them in their 50s, 60s and so forth, um, but very influential people. And they did these sorts of things that have been fairly widely reported. And yet, I would argue that the decisions often made there, or the discussions made there, the camaraderie that was developed, uh, would ultimately find its way into policy or financial decisions by governments and industry. Because you had Hollywood magnets and you had the likes of the Googles of the world, and then of course all the way up to presidents and other countries. Uh, a bizarre secret society of sorts. Bohemian Grove was, uh, was astounding when I first heard about it. I never heard about it at all during the 80s or the first part of the 90s. So we have somebody that was coming to our offices seeking help, coming out of really, really dark satanic rituals and abuse and so forth. And one day they asked me, have you heard of Bohemian Grove? I said, no. They sat down and they wanted sheets of paper, big sheets of paper. They began to draw cabins, in occult symbols, trees. Then they drew this like little lake area and then a big owl. And they had people in hooded robes throwing a man into the fires that showed people sitting across. So they began to show all the, draw all these pictures. They actually handed me a necklace with an owl that they said they wore uh, in the 60s when they were there. So as they explained it to me in the early 90s, it was a place where political, military, media, and wealthy elite people were brought. Massive sexual decadence, sexual ritual, sexual um, exploitation. Kids, girls, boys were used. Um, some of it for bribing. So Bohemian Grove came out later on with the, the Alex Jones video. As Soon as I saw it, I, I went back to the paperwork, went back to the in individual that you know first shared it with us, this is um, on the Russian River in California. It's been there for a long time. It's connected to Skull and Bones. It's connected to other darker-oriented, um, we'd call it secret society. But Bohemian Grove is literally no different than a high place of the Old Testament. It is an encampment for a, an idol of an actual demonic presence. That's what every idol ha is, an, is a representation of the actual presence of a, of a, of a territorial or a particular demon god, small g, that would, that would rule a tribe or a family or rule, rule a nation even. 
and that would be the the image. So we have the owl there. They do a number of preparatory rituals, which is true among left-hand pathers. That this whole ritual leading up to this, it's one of many that is done, but before they can ever do it, and they never do it without acquiring, inviting, somehow they bring in the world elite. So we all know the stories now, even from the Bohemian Grove Club in San Francisco, the names that have been put out, the lists that have been out, many, many other pictures are out now, old black and white pictures are out. It's been there a long time. It's a place where you can come as Democrat or Republican. You can come as a financier. You can come as the CEO of major corporations and major companies. It's a place for networking. It's a place where you can come and without the camera of the media on you, can discuss policy. And really what it boils down to is relationship building. Relationship building across all lines. It's that rubbing shoulders, it's that coming together. It's that place where they inspire one another and move agendas and ideas forward without the prying eyes of media, without the prying eyes of the public. One of the most damning indictments of the realities of this Luciferian gathering, made up of all secret societies and political parties, celebrities and global leaders, would be the David Gergen Street interview. Gergen was the presidential advisor to Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton, and a longtime member of the Grove. This literally validates not only the existence of the Grove and the rituals, but also depicts the code of secrecy taken by its members. I read a Washington Times article many years ago where you had a comment about the organization, and then now it's been in the Wall Street Journal, it's been in a lot of different newspapers, and that's the Bohemian Grove. And back in, what was it, 19... Uh, 96 when you joined uh, as a Clinton advisor they were the Republicans were criticizing you oh what about Bohemian Grove and then you counter uh, and then you countered them by saying hey I don't run around in the woods naked what did that mean here is the before mentioned Washington Times article where he said I didn't run around naked like they do I don't, I don't, I don't know what I don't know what quote you're referring to I'm not aware of any quote like that uh, listen uh, I am uh, uh, a happy member of the Bohemian Grove. I like the, uh, the folks who come there, and uh, it's really inappropriate for me to uh, talk about a uh, uh, the group beyond that. Thank you. Have you been there for the ceremony with uh, the cremation of care? Uh, frankly, that's uh, that. Uh, I don't think that's something I need to talk to you about. Have you been there for the ceremony with uh, the cremation of care? Uh, frankly, that's, uh, that, uh, I don't think that's something I need to talk to you about. Really? That's right. Well, I'm Alex Jones, and I snuck in there in 2000. I'm the guy that blew it wide open and got the video. It's been on national TV. Well, I disrespect you for that. You do? I do. But it's a lot of big public officials going in there. You don't we deserve to know? You, you took an, I don't know anything about you, and I don't know anything about your film. But if you go in there with an understanding, you violated that understanding by releasing that film, and I don't respect you for that. Really? Well, you we have public you, I'm sorry, you took an understanding when you went in there that you would not do that film. And you did, did you have an understanding when you went in there? No. Did you crash it? Yes. Yeah, and it has no trespassing signs there too, doesn't it? No, they put them yes, up after. Oh, I'm I sorry. Just in. I'm sorry, sir. I've been there before. I know what I want the circumstances are, and I'm sorry you uh, violated the understandings. But it was not that was not a gentlemanly thing to do. But what about the ritual? Is the ritual gentlemanly? <laughs> Oh, 
sir. Everything uh, you, I, I, I don't, I don't owe you this comment. I know. I appreciate you, 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 you have you. This is what's called ambush journalism, and I disrespect you for that as well. So thank have you, you ever and goodbye. Been in the ritual? That's none of your damn business. Oh, All right. Listen, oh. listen. You go around and and make understandings with people and violate them. You, you ambush people on the streets, and that's that's inappropriate form of journalism. If you wish to practice that, that's fine. But don't ask others to respect you for it. If you want to, you you can do. It. You're free American, like anything you want. If you want to be uncivil and rude and ungentlemanly, that's up to you. But don't expect the rest well, of us to say, "Oh well, you're there, one. Mr. Gergen." I'm sorry. Nobody sets policy in there. We try to be gentlemen, and obviously, you don't belong there. Weaving spiders coming out here. The biggest issue is the ritual itself. People see the ritual, they hear the stuff. They, it's almost like a massive drama that's going on. It looks like a big dramatic thing. When you hear the voice of the speaker, the, the person behind speaking about the cremation of care and be gone and, and, he, and he screams all these things out. And then the audience of presidents and senators and me, the world's elite all begin to clap. First we have to ask, who, who has the clout to bring world leaders, presidents, kings of the earth, media moguls, military generals, who has the power to bring those people together in one location? Why would anybody, any human being, even if it was just a fake mock human sacrifice, who would go to that? So even if it was mock, even if it was fake, why would world leaders, powerful people, go there and applaud at the end if it was fake. Here's what I believe without question about Bohemian Grove. Some are there because they've been invited to be influenced. They're unwitting to what's going on. Many, if not most, are witting to what's going on. They know what's happening. When we found out the reasons for the, the ritual at Bohemian Grove, the, 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 the human sacrifice that would go on, it's not Moloch, but it goes back to Sumer, more likely to Semiramis and the ancient, the most ancient of the ancient gods, small g, and the ritual of a human to be offered. So that in a ritual, as I said earlier, when a ritual is done, it's done as inspired by that side to open a doorway to cause a release, to grant the door, to open the door so they can come through. So the most important thing is not only who gets them to come, who designs this to be done, and what's the real reason? The real reason is similar to Revelation 16. When out of the mouth of the false prophet, the beast, the antichrist, uh, and the dragon, come spirits sent to the kings of the earth to supernaturally gather them, to move them. You have a massively global scale, powerful ritual being done so that when that human being is thrown and probably alive, maybe drugged, but probably alive, thrown into the fires, burned alive, then the demons that have been right at the doorway, all of a sudden the doorway, the, you know, the curtains come down and that presence by target goes to the audience there. So in the, the real Luciferians, the reason they're doing this summoning spirits, sending it on to the audience, world leaders for influence, for inspiration, for preparation to move them in one direction. It is an astounding ritual. How could it be happening on U.S. soil? It's a global class ritual.
It's a um, powerful high place sitting on U.S. soil. Bohemian Grove is a high holy place for the shadow government and has been since its infancy. The occultists, movers, and shakers of the world have long found demonically charged power and comfort in the blood rituals amidst this brotherhood of brotherhoods. What was once considered a conspiracy theory, this shadow government, has now broken out into the mainstream under a different name, possibly to soften the blow of its exposure. This long-standing cabal of decision makers and policy setters, the hand behind the false flag terror attacks and sponsor of international terrorist groups, the shadow government is now known as the deep state. There exists in the world today and has existed for thousands of years a body of enlightened humans united in what might be termed an order of the quest. It is composed of those whose intellectual and spiritual perceptions have revealed to them that civilization has a secret destiny. The outcome of this secret destiny is a world order ruled by a king with supernatural powers. This king was descended of a divine race, that is, he belonged to the order of the Illumined. But those who come to a state of wisdom then belong to a family of heroes, perfected human beings. The deep state is the political means to advance the agenda of secret societies. It's the hand that rocks the cradle, per se. It's the arm that gets things done. Controlling the narrative, both politically and culturally, the deep state is the puppet master, regardless of the perceived party dominance. It enacts policies, it funds terror, creates social uprising, and even tailors the mainstream media, all with the goal of advancing the nations towards the one world system. Literally speaking, they are constructing the beast system. It's really a clandestine type of uh, network of, of people that are undercutting government. Uh, you know, it really dates back to Mustafa Ataturk, the Turkish leader of 1923, when he used clandestine operations within government to preserve his own government. And, you know, more recently, of course, in this country, you know, starting really during the election of 2016 for Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, you know, we began to see uh, evidence of what we've seen overseas in Turkey and other countries, and that is specifically a shadow government. But ultimately, I really see three levels. Uh, the first level of the deeper state uh, is the political class, those people that we send to Washington for the U.S. Senate, uh, the U.S. House of Representatives. And then, of course, you have the people that work for the federal government, for the president and his administration, the bureaucracy. If you listen to the likes of uh, Bernie Sanders, the independent that ran for president, uh, if you listen to Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, or you listen to former President Jimmy Carter, they call it an oligarchy. In other words, you know, only a handful of people truly run the government. They truly run the political uh, establishment in Washington. And they operate based upon who's the biggest donor to their particular uh, interests. So they refer to it as an oligarchy, a, a government of a few. Now, when you look at the bureaucracy, the people that are working for these political people in the first level, uh, the bureaucracy is representative of, in some cases, people that truly tried to uh, run things from behind the scenes. 
Many people are finally waking up to the existence of the deep state after years of calling it a conspiracy theory. But what most people don't realize is that this deep state, this shadow American government, goes all the way back to the very first president, George Washington, and the Founding Fathers. If you go back to the very beginning of our country, uh, the Founders, there were 55 of those that attended the Constitutional Convention. Um, the windows were locked, by the way, at the time when they were writing our first our Declaration and then our Constitution. Why? Uh, they didn't want the average citizen to listen in on the proceedings. Uh, it's because they were the elite at the time. They were an oligarchy, people that were unelected, uh, people that were wealthy, mostly lawyers, that uh, were really going to put together a government that, you know, yeah, was going to give us some liberty from the British and so forth, but a government that ultimately uh, was very similar to what we found and left behind in Great Britain. It, it was bicarmel, in other words, a, a Senate that was really like the House of Lords. Initially, it wasn't going to be voted down by the people. Uh, House of Representatives was really like the House of Commons, and uh, it was organized accordingly. As you go through the, the, the litany of things that uh, they put together, it was truly a, an oligarchy, though it had, gave us some liberty. It wasn't until Andrew Jackson was president and he formed the political parties that ultimately put together our current system that we found that the people began to have a voice. And I think that's critical to understand and appreciate that the deep state was beginning to recede and the people were having influence over the direction of government. So you have that level. Then you have the people that are behind the scenes, what I call the second layer. Second layer are the influencers, the deep-pocketed wealthy people, the George Soroses of the world that donate $12 billion to non-government organizations that indeed influence our uh, political class and our federal bureaucracy. Uh, clearly, you have lobbyists, and there are thousands of them in Washington. You have non-government organizations that are so-called think tanks that produce papers, and academia that produce papers that are used to influence politicians and the bureaucracies on the policies that they want. Are they really reflecting the will of the American people? In many cases, I'd argue no, they aren't. Uh, you have secret societies. Now, I know that yeah, a lot of people don't quite understand and appreciate these groups, uh, the Bilderberger Group. Of course, uh, they're a, an influence of great proportions. They, in 1991, rather, recruited Bill Clinton, uh, a lonely governor from the obscure state of Arkansas, raised him up, gave him a lot of money, and gave him a, a message, and that message was about trade. It was NAFTA, and he sold NAFTA as his agenda, and of course he sold a lot of other bad ideas as well. The Bilderbergers also raised up Barack Obama, uh, gave him money, gave him media attention, and eventually the nomination from virtually nowhere. And of course he ruled with a very progressive agenda, which is what most of these globalists, most of these progressives have in mind at the second level, second layer. And then, of course, you have foreign governments that are part of the second layer of uh, the deeper state. The Saudis have spent hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying Washington for its own political purposes. Uh, there are many, many others uh, that are involved in this political influence class that, you know, is involved with Washington.
Before we get into what empowers the deep state or the final level, we have to understand that their agenda is globalism. Globalism is described clearly in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 as the world system of which the Antichrist will take the reins. We're dealing with the indisputable objective of the secret societies, which further explains why the deep state is run by these very secret societies. Their aim is to build a Luciferian world kingdom, and they use democracy to spread their ideology upon the world stage. The World Federalist Association is the longest running pro-world government lobby group in the United States. It didn't start out under that name. Back in the 1940s and 1950s, it started out as the United World Federalists. Today, it goes under a different name, Citizens for Global Solutions. But all throughout its history, the World Federalist Association and its international umbrella group, the World Federalist Movement, have been working towards the idea of a global government, a world government, a new world order. That is the language that comes through. Back in the year 2000, I attended the United Nations Millennium Forum. I went as an independent accredited expert. However, I, because I was a member of the World Federalist Association at that time, I'd attended a number of meetings, a number of their events, and had been given a membership by the organization. I quickly discovered when I was at the, at the United Nations Millennium Forum that we were running the show, that the World Federalist Movement was running the United Nations event that I was attending. I was part of subgroup six. Subgroup six was about restructuring world order. And so for the course of the week, we had panels and workshops and lectures and sessions, planning sessions, on things like creating a global taxation regime, developing an international military and police force, setting up a global parliamentary assembly. This is a very big idea. Because what we were doing was we were discussing the framework, the skeletal framework for literally a form of world government. What is a world government? A world judicial system. A world where we develop international law. A world military and police presence. A world executive. George Bush Sr. called it a new world order. That language, he used that language all the time. In fact, he was really well known for that phraseology. A lot of people even thought he was the one that brought up the term, that, that he somehow invented it. No, 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 no. He was using an old, old phrase. Ronald Reagan talked about a new world order. Jimmy Carter talked about a new world order. FDR talked about a new world order. Back in the 1940s, the birth of various world federalist organizations, including the United World Federalists, even churches were talking about world order. There were church crusades on world order. The Baptists were having crusades on world order. The Methodists were. They were doing letter-writing campaigns to America's politicians, saying, as you guys work through the idea of a United Nations, this is in the late, pardon me, the mid-1940s, the later part of World War II, you need to develop this as an authoritative, effective, empowered international authority. And in fact, you can go back even earlier than that. You can go to World War I. Nicholas Murray Butler, the president of Columbia University, a man who could walk into the office of kings and prime ministers and presidents. He was Mr. International during World War I. He openly talked about a new world order. In fact, he described World War I as the destruction of the old order and a war for the new order. And what he described was 
the emergence of a world authority with an international judicial system, an international police presence, and world law. This really is the ultimate idea, the ultimate goal of the oneness of man, the oneness of the world. The phrase, the New World Order, doesn't end there. You can go beyond that, back all the way to 1873 with the founder of the Baha'i Faith talking about the necessity of a New World Order. And that New World Order would have a judicial, world judicial system. It would even have a world city, a world headquarters. It would truly be one world. This big idea, this dream, has pulsed and beat within the heart of American elites for at least a number of generations. It goes back a long ways. Globalism is about, to most of the most people, it's about instant communication worldwide. It's about open markets uh, around the world, uh, open borders in, in many cases. But it's more nefarious than that. Uh, to me, it's about a religion, a religion of humanism, a religion that wants to reduce the Earth's population from the current 8 billion to 500 million, thanks to the likes of globalist Ted Turner. They believe that they're genetically predisposed to be the elite of the world and that they are going to run things. They trace themselves back to, uh, of course, Friedrich Hegel, who is a 19th century German philosopher who believed in uh, the zeitgeist, uh, the spirit of the time. And they believed in, over time, that man's going to become perfect uh, eventually. And as a result, they're going to be in charge of this perfect world. And it's, of course, going to be a one world government uh, run by them uh, with far fewer of us than there are today. So the globalists are a pretty heinous group of people, and their ideology is typified by occultism, Luciferianism, uh, and of course moral relativism. And so when I talk about the globalists, whoever they may be, the Kissingers, the David Rockefellers, the Hillarys, and so forth, uh, I think psychopathic Luciferians, and that's their general ideology. This is an idea that's been in circulation for a long time and it goes into some pretty interesting areas. Uh, in 1951 the World Federalists met with Pope Pius XII and in his speech to the World Federalists talked to them in glowing terms that this was really a noble idea, that this was that this was the direction that the world was going, that your your program gentlemen is a necessary program. This is needed. The Pope's address in 1965 to the United Nations was also about the necessity of a world authority and how what we really need is the world to come together through the United Nations to have a final world authority. The idea of a world authority is really intriguing. When I was at the United Nations Millennium Forum, one of the documents that, got, that was in circulation was transformation of the world. It was put together by the head of the World Assembly of Turkic Peoples. He suggested a world king, a type of authority figure, somebody who could pull the nations together into one. We need some kind of world coordinator. Small doubt that the world does need a civilized coordinator in international relations and in settling global problems. More than that, this coordinator must be a stabilizing factor. Actually, 
the last ditch authority on the earth. He must win confidence of each man and each nation. People must be stark sure that this coordinator would solve any problem in a just and humane way. And one should be sure that in him, he would find understanding and sympathy, that he would treat any nation as his own son, and that he is indeed the last resort. And the man should convince his terrestrial brothers therein by his practical deeds. Dot, dot, dot. Can the world community do without a coordinator? Definitely not. This idea of uniting the world under one king, it's an ancient idea. The first to attempt this was Nimrod at Babel. They had a one-world religious system, government, language, and also a king. Never in all of human history has a kingdom arisen with such power, wealth, and influence as the United States. Within 200 years from the day of its founding, America ascended to the summit of supremacy, towering above every other nation on earth with a military armament twice that of all other nations combined, and an economy that controlled the world. Was America's incredible rise to supremacy merely coincidental? Was it providential? One thing is for certain. This land of the plume serpent was chosen long ago to be the trestle board of an ancient plan. The key that unlocks the mystery of America's secret destiny is a name, Francis Bacon. Sir Francis Bacon, without a doubt, is one of the most enigmatic personalities of the modern era. Born in London at the height of the English Renaissance on the 22nd of January, 1561, Bacon would himself become a Renaissance man of the highest caliber. Before his death on the 9th of April, 1626, this one man within 65 years would literally define the methods of modern science, as well as the parlance of modern English. But perhaps most significantly of all, he would chart the very destiny of what was to become the United States of America. Aside from his many exploits in science, philosophy, and literature, Bacon was a powerful statesman and parliamentarian, holding many titles during his illustrious career, including Attorney General, Lord Chancellor of England, Viscount of St. Alban, and Baron of Verulam, among others. He was also a favored courtier and close advisor of both Queen Elizabeth and her successor, King James. Dubbed the father of modern science, Francis Bacon has been hailed by many including Thomas Jefferson, as one of the most influential men in all of human history. But behind the public veneer of this brilliant man lie dark and demonic shadows. Ironically, Francis Bacon is widely considered within the academic community to be the archetype of empiricism and practical thinking. And yet, if truth be told, this father of modern science can also be rightly considered the father of modern esotericism. It was most likely Bacon who coined the phrase, knowledge is power. But what escapes those who employ this axiom is that the knowledge which Bacon valued most was not empirical knowledge, as they suppose, but rather 
esoteric knowledge. In other words, secret knowledge is the source of true power. It is no wonder then that Bacon himself claimed to be in possession of such secret knowledge, which he attained by his own admission through intercourse with demons. Among his many affiliations with the occult, Francis Bacon was a master Kabbalist. Kabbalah is the Jewish branch of the ancient mystery schools, and like the other branches, its prime objective is the perfection and deification of man, in a word, Luciferianism. For Bacon, the empirical material sciences were merely facilitators of the greater esoteric metaphysical sciences through which secret knowledge could be attained via contact with superior spiritual beings residing outside of the physical plane, beings through whom he claimed to have received the inspiration of his life's work. In order to veil this intercourse with demons from the vigilant eyes of the Roman Catholic Church and political adversaries, he concealed his occultic practices within the sanctum of secret societies, most notably the shadowy brotherhood of the Rose and Cross, the Rosicrucians, of whom Bacon was chief. In fact, there is reason to believe that Francis Bacon was the protege of notorious wizard Dr. John Dee, who was a close friend and advisor to Queen Elizabeth, and the devisor of a new brand of sorcery he called Enochian Angel Magic. Aside from being a sorcerer, Dee was a respected mathematician and astronomer, as well as a leading expert in navigation who trained many of the explorers that would conduct England's voyages of discovery. Dee was also a prominent figure within the Order of the Rosen Cross, and was most likely the Order's Grand Master, before passing the torch to Bacon. There are many peculiar stories surrounding the lives and times of both John Dee and Francis Bacon, which are in themselves highly intriguing. But what is most relevant to this analysis was their shared conviction that the legendary empire of Atlantis would rise again in the very land that is now called the United States of America. Dee and Bacon not only shared this conviction, but also labored under the guidance of non-human intelligences to make it so. Before his death in 1626, Bacon wrote a bizarre novel entitled New Atlantis. The book would not be published until 1627 by Bacon's personal secretary, William Raleigh, and never in its entirety. The traditional story holds that Francis Bacon was unable to finish the novel before his death, but many of the initiated brethren believed differently, including Manly P. Hall. The New Atlantis was first published in 1627 as a kind of appendix to the Silva Savarum, a natural history in ten centuries. On the title page is a curious design. It shows the figure of an ancient creature representing time drawing a female figure from a dark cavern. The meaning is obvious. Through time, the hidden truth shall be revealed. This figure is one of the most famous of the seals or symbols of the Order of the Quest. Contained within it is the whole promise of the resurrection of man and the restitution of the divine theology.
It is well known among the secret societies of Europe that the second part of the new Atlantis exists. It includes a description of the great room in Solomon's house, wherein are displayed the crests and the coats of arms of the governors of the philosophic empire. It may be for this reason that the writings were suppressed, for these crests and arms belong to real persons who might have been subjected to persecution, as Sir Walter Raleigh was, if their association with the secret order had been openly announced. The New Atlantis is a fictional narrative, but with a non-fictional plot, that may have served as the codex, the very blueprint, for the formulation of the government of the United States of America, and the esoteric organization that would control it from behind the scenes. In many ways, the New Atlantis is a manifesto of the secret society, a public confession, though concealed in a parlance perceived only by the initiated, concerning the construction of a utopian Christian society that would be ruled by a pagan philosophic priesthood, a priesthood dedicated to the doctrine and execution of the Luciferian agenda. The following is a brief summation of the New Atlantis. The story begins with a group of seafaring Europeans who set out on a voyage from the shores of Peru, but after being swept up in wayward winds, are driven far from their intended destination to the shores of an uncharted and mysterious island, whose name, they are told, is Bensalem, or Son of Peace in Hebrew. The seafarers soon discover that Bensalem is a utopian Christian society governed by an order of philosophic priests called the Society of Solomon's House. Which house or college, my good brethren, is the very eye of the kingdom? After a lengthy tale of how Bensalem came to be a Christian nation, involving an ark as an ark of the covenant, the apostle Bartholomew, the Bible, along with some extra-biblical texts and the apostolic sign of tongues, the European strangers are briefed about the old world, the time when Atlantis reigned supreme, and the civilizations of the earth were higher and nobler, possessing secret knowledge and advanced technology. It is revealed to them that Atlantis was what they knew as America, and that there were also great and mighty kingdoms in Mexico and Peru associated with Atlantis. Finally, after much fanfare regarding the chaste and pious society of Bensalem, one of the Europeans is afforded a rare audience with an esteemed father of Solomon's house, whose pomp and regality is described in great detail. What follows is a comprehensive briefing of the many technological wonders of Bensalem. Remarkably, the technologies listed on the final pages of Francis Bacon's early 17th century work read like a prophetic forecast of things to come. They include, but are not limited to, deep underground facilities three miles down, skyscrapers half a mile high, wind and water turbines, artificial atmospheric devices, electrical devices, genetic labs, industrial manufacturing, lasers, powerful telescopes, spectacles for the eyes, magnifying glasses, audio amplification, including headphones, advanced firearms and missiles, flying machines, submarines, 
and holographic projections. After being briefed on the technological wonders of Bensalem, as well as the function of some of the secret agents of Solomon's house, a very telling admission is made. And this we do also. We have consultations. Which of the inventions and experiences which we have discovered shall be published, and which not? And take all an oath of secrecy for the concealing of those which we think fit to keep secret, though some of those we do reveal some time to the state, and some not. What Bacon's New Atlantis truly depicts is a pseudo-Christian society governed by Rosicrucians. In fact, later editions of the book included the subtitle, The Land of the Rosicrucians. The entire narrative of the New Atlantis is replete with Christian jargon, mingled with the language of the mystery schools. This mixture of Christianity with the mysteries is the calling card of the Order of the Rose and Cross, and subsequently of every secret society that has branched out of them, including the Masonic Order. The very emblem of the Rosicrucians, the Rosy Cross, is a flagrant declaration of both their objective and their mode of operation. The cross, usually positioned behind or beneath the rose, represents Christianity. However, the rose in its varying configurations signifies the mystery religion. The mystery religion kept secret by the serpents, the sons of the dragon, since the days of Babylon, and revealed only to the elite among the initiated, is nothing more than the doctrine of Lucifer, combined with the forbidden knowledge of the fallen watchers, first disclosed to their wives and offspring in the pre-flood age. The teachings of this arcane knowledge have since been divided and compartmentalized among the many mystery schools around the earth, including the secret societies of the West. Through the blending of Christianity with the mystery religion, acolytes of the mystery schools, shrouded in a veneer of Christian piety, could operate in secret and without fear of persecution. Also, by infiltrating the hierarchies of Christian institutions, the whole sway of Christian doctrine, practice, thought, and culture could be manipulated and eventually controlled by Luciferian handlers. The idea of a new Atlantis did not begin with Bacon's book. Since the destruction of the old Atlantis in the age before the great flood of Noah, there has ever been a secret plan to reinstitute the old world order in which the gods mingled themselves with the seed of men and their hybrid offspring ruled the earth. As explained in the previous episode of this series, Atlantis symbolizes this old world order. Thus, the building of a new Atlantis is the inaugural procedure for the inception of a new world order in which the gods return. The adepts in the higher degrees of the mystery schools, both past and present, have always understood this occult principle and have ever been laboring since the beginning to bring about its accomplishment. In his book, The Secret Destiny of America, late Masonic philosopher Manly P. Hall makes it abundantly clear that America was chosen long ago as the site for the rebuilding of Atlantis and the reinstitution of the old world order under the guise of universal democracy 
the new world order. Believing this to be so, I dedicate this book to the proposition that American democracy is part of a universal plan. Thousands of years ago, in Egypt, the mystical orders were aware of the existence of the Western Hemisphere and the great continent which we call America. The bold resolution was made that this Western continent should become the site of the philosophic empire. One of the most ancient of man's constructive ideals is the dream of a universal democracy and a cooperation of all nations in a commonwealth of states. The mechanism for the accomplishment of this ideal was set into motion in the ancient temples of Greece, Egypt, and India. So brilliant was the plan, and so well was it administrated, that it has survived to our time and will continue to function until the great work is accomplished. As Hall indicates, the discovery and colonization of America did not happen by chance. It was part of an ancient plan to build a philosophic empire, a new Atlantis, a plan whose time had come to fruition in the 17th century and whose agents of implementation would be the Rosicrucians under the direction of Francis Bacon. It is well known that Bacon, along with his influential fraternal brothers, directed much of the colonization of America, as Hall confirms. Bacon quickly realized that here in the New World was the proper environment for the accomplishment of his great dream, the establishment of the philosophic empire. It must be remembered that Bacon did not play a lone hand. He was the head of a secret society, including in its membership the most brilliant intellectuals of his day. All these men were bound together by a common oath to labor in the cause of world democracy. Bacon's Society of the Unknown Philosophers included men of high rank and broad influence. Together with Bacon, they devised a colonization scheme. This colonization scheme of Bacon's included capturing one of the most coveted occultic locations on the planet, the 77th Meridian West, known as God's Longitude, upon which Washington, D.C. would later be constructed. It was most likely fellow Rosicrucian and subordinate in the order to Bacon, Sir Walter Raleigh, who accomplished this task. When once the east coast of America had been thoroughly scouted by Bacon's men, and the important location secured, Rosicrucian and later Masonic agents were sent in earnest to begin the colonization of the New World. Bacon's secret society was set up in America before the middle of the 17th century, he made sure that the American colonists were thoroughly indoctrinated with the principles of religious tolerance, political democracy, and social equality. The alchemists, Kabbalists, mystics, and Rosicrucians were the incisive instruments of Bacon's plan. Representatives of these groups migrated to the colonies at an early date and set up their organizations in suitable places. But perhaps what Bacon did not anticipate was that another colonization scheme was at work, one that was being directed by the providential hand of God himself. Freed from the iron grip of the Roman Catholic Church after the Protestant Reformation, and unwilling to bow to the corrupt and tyrannical Church of England, a group of Puritan separatists led by William Bradford boarded the Mayflower in September of 1620 
and set out for America. These were truly courageous and pious souls, and genuine Christians adhering to biblical doctrine. When once the pilgrims reached the shores of Cape Cod, after a long and treacherous voyage, they disembarked and fell on their faces before God, making with Him a covenant for themselves and their posterity. Thus, the duality in our country began. On the one hand, Rosicrucians, Masons, Alchemists, Kabbalists, and Mystics were coming to America to carry out the ancient Luciferian plan and build the new Atlantis, while on the other, true Biblical Christians were building godly communities and living in accordance to the teachings of the Apostolic Fathers. But the influx and influence of the secret societies could not be abated, and before long, the course of the colony's future was being plotted in Masonic lodges. Even the Revolutionary War that would lead to America's independence was guided by the Brethren of the Mystery Schools, as Tom Horn affirms in his book, Zenith 2016. That a Rosicrucian Masonic Brotherhood was involved in the American and French as well as European revolutions is indisputable today. As many as 44, though probably a lower number, of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were Freemasons. After the colonists had won their battle for independence, and the United States of America was born, the scope and success of Francis Bacon's colonization scheme would be showcased in the building of Washington, D.C., capital of the new Atlantis. There is perhaps no greater evidence that many of America's founders were initiates of the mystery schools than the layout, architecture, and artwork displayed in the pagan monuments of Washington, D.C. Furthermore, as if to leave a token of their intentions, the Great Seal of the United States was designed to symbolize the work they had begun, but not finished. There is a legend that in the lost Atlantis stood a great university and which originated most of the arts and sciences of the present race. The university was in the form of an immense pyramid with many galleries and corridors, and on the top was an observatory for the study of the stars. This temple to the sciences in the old Atlantis is shadowed forth in the seal of the new Atlantis. Was it the Society of the Unknown Philosophers, who scaled the new nation with the eternal emblems, that all the nations might know the purpose for which the new country had been founded? Benjamin Franklin was the chief representative of the mystery schools in America, and the primary orchestrator of the plan that Bacon had set into motion so many years before. I could spend a long time detailing Franklin's involvement with the occult, and his unparalleled influence in both the Revolutionary War and the formulation of the government that preceded it, but I will abstain for brevity's sake. Suffice it to say, Benjamin Franklin, like his forerunner Francis Bacon, was engaged in intercourse with demons, and very possibly guided by the agents of the antediluvian world as he labored to build the new Atlantis. Franklin spoke for the order of the quest and most of the men who worked with him in the early days of the American Revolution were also members. 
The plan was working out. The new Atlantis was coming into being, in accordance with the program laid down by Francis Bacon a hundred and fifty years earlier. The rise of American democracy was necessary to a world program. At the appointed hour, the freedom of man was publicly declared. Democracy is the banner beneath which the Luciferian agenda marches. The doctrine of Lucifer is one of enlightenment and apotheosis. It teaches that through knowledge man can perfect himself and become like God. Luciferians believe that they are embracing the light, and indeed they are, but it is a light that leads to everlasting darkness. They seek to liberate humanity from the human condition, and yet reject utterly its singular rectification in the Lord Jesus Christ. But above all, they endeavor to reinstitute the golden age and enthrone their own philosopher king, their Bensalem, the son of peace, who the Bible identifies with a different title, the son of perdition. Some Luciferians are overtly wicked, knowing full well with whom they have aligned themselves and against whom. However, the majority of Luciferians sincerely believe that they are members of a philosophic priesthood dedicated to the liberty of mankind. Such were many of the Founding Fathers of the United States of America. What they fail to realize is that the true nature of Luciferian enlightenment is liberty from the law of God and the dominion of His Anointed One. This kind of freedom is vividly illustrated in the second psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. I believe that the intentions of many of the founding fathers were noble and praiseworthy. But because of the influence of the occult, a Faustian bargain was made. The seeds of liberty that were sown into the blood-soaked soil of America were derived from the fruit of a Luciferian tree. They would indeed grant the benefits of enlightenment, religious tolerance, political democracy, social equality, and prosperity for a while. But when this tree was grown to full maturity, the fruits of its freedom would flower, and the true nature of its origin would be seen. Licentiousness, sexual depravity, pride, corruption, and every form of immorality, the fruits of liberty from the law of God. It is now apparent, nearly 400 years after Francis Bacon initiated his colonization scheme, that the new Atlantis has been successfully constructed according to the blueprint set forth in his book. America was designed to be a Christian nation on paper, but in practice it would be governed from behind the curtains by a pagan society of Solomon's house. Writer and filmmaker Christian J. Pinto elucidates. Bacon's New Atlantis has also been called the land of the Rosicrucians, and that is exactly what America has become, thanks to the secret societies. The rise of paganism in our country is no accident. It was planned 
from the beginning. But what is the end game for the new Atlantis? What is the prime objective? I believe it is this, to open the gates to the gods of the old Atlantis and reinstate the antediluvian old world order, the hybrid age, when the gods mingled with men. This occult plan for America, according to Madame Blavatsky, is cryptically referenced in one of the stanzas from an ancient Tibetan manuscript called the Book of Dizian. The serpents who redescended, who made peace with the fifth race, who taught and instructed it. Occultic philosophy teaches that even now, under our very eyes, the new race and races are preparing to be formed, and that it is in America that the transformation will take place, and has already silently commenced. Is it possible that the founding of the United States of America has been guided by the same plume serpent entities that, according to tradition, founded the Maya, Aztec, and Inca civilizations. Like our own nation, these kingdoms flourished with enlightenment and knowledge until they descended into a bloodbath of paganism, despotism, and moral depravity. The serpent godmen that established these civilizations were said to have taught Christian values and are even depicted in some instances with the symbol of the cross on their garments, in their hands, and even hoisted on their backs, as in Quetzalcoatl's case. Are we, as a nation, being guided even now by the exiles of the old Atlantis to prepare the way for the coming of their progenitors in the new Atlantis. I cannot say for certain, but I do know this. The enlightenment and knowledge of Lucifer's light will always lead to death and eternal darkness. There is no political, philosophical, or spiritual concept that can deliver the human race from its wretched condition of sin and death. True enlightenment does not come from Greek philosophers, scientific discoveries, or contact with superior beings. True enlightenment is faith in the Son of God. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This concludes the Land of the Plumed Serpent series. For more information on the occultic roots of America's founding, read Tom Horn's superbly documented book, Zenith 2016, and watch Chris Pinto's fascinating documentary film, Secret Mysteries of America's Beginnings, The New Atlantis. Reporting for SteveQuayle.com, I'm Timothy Alberino, and that's my analysis. Well, last night, I sort of left you with a revelation that many of you were not prepared to receive. And tonight, I'm going to continue and back it up with a lot of facts. Remember, a lot of the meat of this little mini-series that we're doing this week comes from a book entitled Scarlet and the Beast, written by John Daniel. Now, we've covered a lot of territory, and one of the points that I made is that the beast must resemble with at least 14 points exactly ancient Rome. So we'll begin tonight 
setting out some of these similarities between Rome and the United States of America. From 100 to 300 A.D., most of pagan Rome converted to Christianity. And when this nation was founded, 67% of America's population was Christian. Christians in Rome suffered severe persecution. Christians in America were fleeing European persecution. Rome, ladies and gentlemen, in its time was the melting pot of the world. And today, one of the well-known phrases is that America is the melting pot of the world. Rome was a democracy based upon a two-party system, the optimates and the populares. And the United States of America, they say, is a democracy. It was really founded as a republic, but today, a democracy based upon a two-party system, the Democrats and the Republicans. Rome had a divided balance of power, the Roman Tribune and his Senate. America has a divided balance of power, the American President and his Congress. Rome was based on specific laws. They had 12 tables. America is based on specific laws, our Constitution. Rome protected the rights of its citizens. America, up until recently, protected the rights of its citizens. In Rome, all men were equal. That was the international law of Rome. In America, all men are equal according to the Declaration of Independence. But let me set that straight. All men in the Declaration of Independence were created equal. All men are not equal. And in Rome, all men, even though they said they were equal, were not. Those are facts. Look in history and you will see. Rome had a sordid history of slavery. America also had a sordid history of slavery. Rome was capitalistic. America is capitalistic. Rome practiced abortion as a means of population control. And the United States of America practices abortion as a form of birth control. Rome loved R-rated entertainment. Look at the history of Pompeii. And here in the United States of America, we protect R-rated entertainment under the First Amendment as freedom of speech. Rome had a welfare program funded by taxes. You all know that we also have a welfare budget, and many take advantage of it. In fact, our welfare budget rivals our military budget. Rome had a thriving business in lawsuits. America also has a thriving business in lawsuits. Sports was Rome's pastime. And in America, football dominates fall and winter, basketball winter and spring, and baseball spring and summer. And I know some men who don't know anything more than the sports statistics for their favorite teams. And they think they're brilliant because of it. Ancient Rome's national emblem was the single-headed eagle pointing west. America's national emblem is the single-headed eagle pointing west. From 300 to 500 A.D., the Roman church was weakened spiritually because of pagan infiltration. And after 200 years, the church in America has also been weakened spiritually because of Masonic infiltration, which is nothing more than the ancient pagan religion of Babylon. So we have not only met 14, ladies and gentlemen, we've gone beyond 14, if you were counting. Most historians also attribute the name America to the explorer Amerigo Vespucci. Freemasonry, however, has a different point of view, and this will be new to most of you. For according to Freemasonry and author Manley Hall, a 33rd degree Freemason, the Indians in Central and South America say the name came from their gods who were peace-loving. For example, the supreme god of the Mayan culture of Central America was known as Quetzalcoatl, a light-skinned god who wore a long white robe covered with red crosses. Carved in the stones of his temples were serpents. Quetzalcoatl was known as the peace-loving serpent god serpent god. The same god in Peru was known as Ameru, the god of peace. 
He was pictured as a plumed serpent. Amaru's territory was known as Amaruka. The 1895 issue of the publication called Lucifer, a periodical published by Freemason Blavatsky's Theosophical Society, states this, quote, From the latter comes our word America. Amaruka is literally translated land of the plumed serpent. The priests of this god of peace once ruled the Americas. All the red men who have remained true to the ancient religion are still under his sway. And according to author William T. Still, Manley Hall claims that since the serpent is frequently symbolic of Lucifer, it is no exaggeration to extrapolate from this that America may well mean, quote, land of Lucifer, end quote. We already have discussed the hierarchy in Freemasonry and that they consider Lucifer to be the good, benevolent, and peace-loving God. Their philosophy is known as the Luciferian philosophy, and it goes something like this. Man was held prisoner by an unjust, vindictive, and jealous God in the Garden of Eden. He was bound in the chains of ignorance. Man was set free by Lucifer through his agent, Satan, when man was given the gift of intellect, and through the use of this intellect, man himself will become God. That is the Luciferian promise, the promise of Satan to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now remember, these are all metaphors. I don't believe for one minute that there was a naked man and woman standing by a tree, and a snake came up and talked to them. These are substitutes, symbols for something much, much deeper, much deeper. America is known as the good benevolent and peace-loving nation. We've also discussed the seal of the Illuminati, the unfinished pyramid. Its capstone and its all-seeing eye represents the kingdom of Lucifer. The image of this Luciferian masterpiece makes up half of the great seal of the United States of America. Just look at a one-dollar bill. And Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 12 tells us that Lucifer was the epitome of beauty. America the beautiful may therefore be a sinister figure of speech for Lucifer, the beautiful. Freemason Manley P. Hall states that when Atlantis died, so did the ideal pattern of government. According to Hall, the League of Ten Kings is part of the secret doctrine preserved by secret societies through their oral traditions. Hall believes that when the unifying force of the Ten Kings was broken, destruction automatically followed. So complete was this destruction, he writes, that men forgot there is a better way of life and accepted the evils of war and crime and poverty as inevitable. The old Atlantis is gone, dissolved in a sea of human doubts, but the philosophical empire would come again as a democracy of wise men. This connects directly with the protocols of the wise men of Sion. Freemasonry planned long ago to philosophically raise Atlantis out of the sea, and in this new land reestablish democracy as a new world order, Novus Ordo Cyclorum. Masonic author George H. Steinmetz confirms in Freemasonry its hidden meaning that the democratic philosophy of Freemasonry has been traced back to the lost continent of Atlantis. He attempts to prove that Atlantis was a Masonic society by suggesting that the destroyed temples of Upper Egypt are all part of that Atlantean destruction. There, in Egypt, we find their ruined temples, which compared with our lodge rooms, have similar floor plans, the same dark north, and many of the same emblems. And remember, in the Lion King, to the north 
was darkness and desolation. Finally, Steinmetz says that one cannot understand the universality of Freemasonry without accepting the Atlantean account. Hall concurs. Masonry is a university teaching the liberal arts and sciences of the soul to all who will attend to its words. It is a shadow of the great Atlantean mystery school which stood with all its splendor in the ancient city of the Golden Gates, where now the turbulent Atlantic rolls in unbroken sweep. And I bet you wondered why they named the bridge in San Francisco the Golden Gate Bridge. Now you know. Hall suggests that the antediluvian civilization was democratic, that Freemasonry planned over three centuries ago to recreate a universal democratic society that will philosophically rise up out of the sea, and like Atlantis, join with ten kings to lead mankind in the pursuit of universal happiness. And what is the sea? Remember, the sea is the mass of humanity, great numbers of people. To rise up out of the sea is to establish through revolution. And that's coming. He says that the Christian church has delayed the search for the new Atlantis, and that's why they hate Christians, and Christians, like Orthodox Jews and the followers of the Prophet Muhammad, are scheduled for extermination in the New World Order. And he alludes to the ancient Roman Empire as the last attempt at resurrection of the Atlantean project, and states that another attempt would be made. Now we can see how Freemasonry's planned resurrection of Atlantis correlates with Daniel's prophecy of a revived Roman Empire. Likewise, John's vision of the beast with ten horns, representing ten kings, is more significant in this regard, given the fact that Freemasonry calls for its one-world government to be patterned after the Atlantean League of Ten Kings. Therefore, to locate the headquarters of Freemasonry's new philosophical Atlantis, Daniel's revived Roman Empire and John's beast, we must search for a land that meets the following requirements. One, if old Atlantis was democratic, then new Atlantis will be democratic and most likely be born of Templar French Freemasonry, the father of modern socialism. Two, John's beast and Freemasonry's philosophical Atlantis will figuratively rise up out of the sea in the Atlantic Ocean, somewhere west of the Straits of Gibraltar, where old Atlantis was alleged to have sunk and will be established through revolution from out of the masses of people. Three, if resurrected west of the Straits of Gibraltar, Daniel's revived Rome will be a new land in a new world populated from the territory of the old Roman Empire. Four, Daniel's uncivilized beast will be born in an uncivilized western land bordered by water. From Daniel's vantage point at Babylon, a land in the extreme west. Five, John's beast will eventually unite with ten kings, as did old Atlantis, or will be divided into ten regions according to the plan or the world model of the Club of Rome. And on its model, the world will also be divided into ten regions. Unlike Edgar Cayce, Manly P. Hall is not looking for ancient Atlantis to literally rise out of the sea, and neither am I, and neither should you, but I know that some of you at least have, are, and will continue to look for the sea as the literal source of the rising of a new landmass, which will be called Atlantis, and you don't understand the symbology, the metaphors. You are looking at the exoteric. Manly P. Hall rather looks to America as the nation that will represent philosophical Atlantis, and so do I. And through my studies, I know for a fact that this 
is it. For they have made the omission over and over and over again in their writing, the esoteric writings of the secret societies, all of them. In America's Assignment with Destiny, Mammy P. Hall writes, quote, The explorers who opened the new world operated from a master plan and were agents of rediscovery rather than discoveries, end quote. And when Columbus landed upon the beach, instead of planting the flag of Spain, whom he was supposed to represent in his discovery, instead, ladies and gentlemen, this great explorer, who instead of carrying the cross of Christianity upon the sails of his ship, carried the cross, the red cross of the Knights Templars, planted a green flag with a white cross. In a second book, called The Secret Destiny of America, Manley P. Hall claims that the unifying goal of ancient secret societies was to create a new Atlantis beyond the Atlantic Ocean in what is now called America. The bold resolution, he said, was that this western continent should become the site of the philosophic empire. Still explains that America, according to this great plan, was to become the first nation to begin to establish a universal democracy or a world commonwealth of nations. This quest was said to be the most noble pursuit to which a man could devote himself. And ladies and gentlemen, I would have to agree with that statement if it were done honestly and openly and for the noble purpose for which they claim. But we know that it is built upon lies and deception and manipulation and that the men bringing it about, and it is all men, they do not practice what they preach. They are liars, deceivers, and manipulators. And there is nothing noble about the goal of these scum. The first modern philosopher to promote America as the new Atlantis was Sir Francis Bacon, who lived from 1561 to 1626. He was an English lord and Zionist Rosicrucian. As an occultist well-versed in the great plan, also known as the Enterprise, Bacon concealed the secret doctrine in a novel entitled New Atlantis, in which he laid out the plan for a utopian society to be built on this newly discovered continent. Masonic authors Marie Bauer Hall and Manley P. Hall respectively say of Bacon, and I quote, Bacon is the founder of Freemasonry, the guiding light of the Rosicrucian order, the members of which kept the torch of true universal knowledge, the secret doctrine of the ages, alive during the dark night of the Middle Ages. Bacon had been initiated into the new liberalism represented throughout Europe by secret societies of intellectuals dedicated to civil and religious freedom. Later, when the moment was propitious, he threw the weight of his literary group with the English colonization plan for America, cherishing, as he did, the dream of a great commonwealth in the new Atlantis, end quote. This great plan has been perpetuated by an international group of only the highest initiates of the secret societies, as I have revealed to you over the years.